0: Thank you for listening, and welcome to the Titans of History series. Episode 26. Peace. Sort of. Welcome back, everyone, and I hope that you are all enjoying a pleasant spring or fall for our listeners down in the Southern Hemisphere. I'm personally waiting for the weather to turn on our side, even though here in the Northeast U.S., the winter was relatively mild from what we're used to. But nevertheless, summer's right around the corner, finally, and I am excited for some sunny days, shorts and T-shirt weather, and some barbecuing. Hopefully, as we get ready for Mother's Day... This weekend, we get just that. Back to our story, though, we are still in the winter of 1801. Napoleon's assassins and suspected assassins have all been either executed or sent to their certain deaths in Guyana. Hohenlinden ended the War of the Second Coalition for the Austrians, and Napoleon made sure that the rest of Europe knew that he was not some mere throne warmer for the eventual return of King Louis XVIII, but rather the actual throne holder. And while the Austrians had been soundly defeated and pushed out of most of northern Italy again, one thorn still remained in the French side, and that was, of course, Great Britain. Or, as Napoleon would always refer to them, likely as a way to lure the other dominions in the realm to sympathize with France, England. Now, after Lunaville was signed and ratified by the French Senate, Napoleon declared to the body on February 13th that he would continue to, quote, "...fight only to secure peace and happiness of the world." an undeniable reference to France's longtime enemy, Britain, who was still fighting on against France in the Atlantic, the Caribbean, and, lest we forget, in the Middle East. But even with their will and ability to fight on, Britain, much like France, was tired after a decade of war, and so by March of 1801, they began to send overtures across the English Channel to begin talks of peace between the two warring nations. Now, March of 1801 was extremely momentous for the geopolitics of Europe, and they would have a great effect on the continent for generations. The first domino to fall was British Prime Minister William Pitt the Younger, whose government had fallen in February over the issue of Catholic emancipation in Ireland after the Acts of Union in 1800. Now, we don't have too much time to get into all the nitty-gritty here, but as a result, he was succeeded on March 1st by Henry Addington, the first Viscount of Sidmouth. Now Pitt is not going away from our story, indeed he'll be back as Prime Minister in three short years just in time for the War of the Third Coalition, but his first resignation should be noted because it pointed to a larger schism in the inner politics of Britain that Napoleon had always wanted to capitalize on, specifically when it came to the matters of religion. Now, Pitt had wanted to extend religious emancipation to the Catholic majority in Ireland, as they comprised over 75% of the population there, but King George III refused, believing it against his coronation oath as the head of the Church of England. And it should also be noted that it was around this time that George began to suffer one of his many bouts of madness, which ultimately led to his incapacity to run the monarchy in the later years of the Napoleonic Wars, but we will get to that in short order. In any event, Pitt resigned and made way for Addington, who, despite being a friend and even objected to the nomination, accepted and took office in March of 1801. Soon thereafter, he sent his foreign secretary, Robert Jenkinson, 2nd Earl of Liverpool, but probably best known as Lord Hawkesbury, to France to begin peace negotiations with the French diplomat, Louis-Guillaume Otto. Shortly after this, the British also launched an invasion of Abakir in Egypt on March 8th, sensing that the weakened French presence there was ripe for defeat. Now, making matters worse for the French was that the British were still in large control of swaths of the Mediterranean. and made escape difficult for the French soldiers, still toiling away haplessly in the desert. Now, Largely due to his campaign and then its abandonment, Napoleon faced a deteriorating position in the Middle East. The French would continue to fight on throughout the summer, but mounting losses in the besiegement of Alexandria would ultimately lead to General Menou's capitulation to the British in September. What had started as an Alexandrian quest to conquer India and then build a canal of the pharaohs ended in an unmitigated disaster for the French, who in the matter of three years saw their influence in the Middle East dwindle down to nearly zero. But perhaps the most important event that likely changed the course of European history was the assassination of Tsar Paul I. Now, we introduced Paul earlier in our series when discussing Napoleon's besiegement of Malta, and if we remember back, the majority of his early life was overshadowed by his domineering mother, Catherine the Great. But Paul was a sort of an oddball in his own right. resentful of the fact he was not made emperor sooner, he quickly became an irascible figure amongst the Russian nobility, especially once he began to espouse pro-German sentiments and, later, reproachment with France after the coalition had fallen apart. Now, this is when Napoleon believed that he had a potential lifelong ally to decide, someone with similar interests and a man who he could influence. But what few allies Paul had within the Russian nobility would soon leave him by the end of his rule. You see, Paul was adamant in providing more rights to the peasant class, as well as requiring members of the nobility to precipitate in chivalry. These uh, radical policies, we'll call them, were too much for them to handle. And on March 23rd, 1801, Paul was assassinated in his bedchamber by Russian officers who got drunk, snuck him in his room, and strangled him and beat him to death after he refused to abdicate. Now, Paul was well aware that there were assassinations afoot, much like Napoleon did prior to the Rue de And yes, it is Nikayz, not Nikay, as I pronounced it last week. I try my best with French, but I do mess up from time to time, so apologies to all my Francophiles for that one. Mea culpa. Anyway. Even though Paul was aware that there were plots against his life, he probably never expected them to come from his military officers. But when he was assassinated, it sent shockwaves throughout Europe, and in particular, France, where Napoleon was said to have been deeply saddened by the news. You see, Napoleon had suspected that British spies were behind the assassination, which likely wasn't completely unfounded because Britain was indeed furious that their longtime ally Russia was now seeking friends across the Channel. But in reality, he was killed by Hanoverian and Georgian generals serving in the Russian army. And later that year, his son, an heir to the Russian throne, was proclaimed czar. And that man, and a major, major, major player to our story, was none other than Tsar Alexander I. Tsar Alexander I of Russia was born on December 23, 1777, so he was only 23 years old when he ascended to the throne of the world's largest nation. Reared in the Enlightenment era espoused by his grandmother and an admirer of Rousseau, Alexander was a rather mercurial figure when it came to the power politics of the later 18th and early 19th centuries. He was well-read on the Enlightenment philosophers of his day and a supposed preacher of liberal ideals, but he would nevertheless continue the absolutist policies and practice that had been entrenched in the Russian Empire since the reign of Ivan the Terrible. He was constantly shaped by the events which surrounded him, especially in his early life. After seeing how his father had been murdered for trying to appease the poor of Russia, he was quick to assert his authority as ruler of Russia, but he also understood that should he want to keep his own life, that he would need to keep his nobility close to his side. Thus, he turned into something of a walking enigma on the European political stage, especially early on in his rule. As British historian Andrew Roberts put it, quote, he was always described as combining a theoretical love of mankind with a practical contempt for men. Well meaning, impressionable, and egotistical, he was so good at playing a part that Napoleon later dubbed him, quote, the Talma of the North. Talma, by the way, was in reference to Francois Joseph Talma, a prominent French actor of the later 18th century. And while Alexander was intrigued, indeed even inspired by Napoleon, it would be his Swiss tutor, Frederic de la Harpe, who would later write in 1801, after returning from Paris, that Napoleon was the worst tyrant that the world had ever produced a sentiment which undoubtedly left an impression on the young Tsar. Now, given how important a role he would have in the downfall of one of history's most important individuals, we'll be coming back to Alexander shortly, and he will get his own episode to dive deeper into his life, as his ascension to the throne was a monumentous day both for Europe and, of course, Napoleon, though neither would know it at the time. What Napoleon did know at the time, however, was that Alexander ascending to the throne would throw a wrench in his plan to bring Russia further into the French sphere of influence. Fearing, rightly so, as it would turn out, that the Russian nobility would do their best to steer the Tsar down the path of British alignment, Napoleon would now be faced with the prospect of once again having to face an armed Russia sometime in the distant future. And it made sense, at least on paper, for the Russians to want to align more closely with the British. They did far more trade with Britain via the Baltic Sea, something which would increase after 1801 because our good friend Horatio Nelson was about to attack Copenhagen and free up some prime ocean real estate to assure that Russia was open for British business and Denmark was closed for French military strength. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about the April 2nd Battle of Copenhagen. Now, if you haven't already noticed, the one major strength that Britain had over France was her vastly superior navy. I mean, duh, we know this, as did France, but Britain also understood that they were unable to fight France head-on in a land war, and thus the coalition forces slowly making peace with France was something that was quickly isolating the British Isles. After talks in the previous decade between France and Britain were unable to achieve a lasting peace, Britain used her mighty naval power to disrupt French shipping and, essentially, try to physically and economically starve her into submission. The problem with this was, as it turned out, that much of Europe also liked to trade with France, and they didn't appreciate Britain interfering with their bottom line. I mean, hey, where else could all the European nobility get their champagne and find Burgundy wine, right? But what really threw the British plan of dominating the Baltic was Tsar Paul I. Again, he had been a British ally, but after Russia left the War of the Second Coalition and he began his reproachment of France, Tsar Paul I helped to establish the Second League of Armed Neutrality, which comprised of Russia, Prussia, Denmark, Norway, and Sweden. The League was established to help ensure free trade with France, but the British viewed this as a threat to their national security due to their perceived isolation and belief that it would cut down on much of their timber imports from Scandinavia. I mean, you can't build the world's greatest navy without some good old Nordic timber, right? Thus. The British decided that a preemptive strike would be best in order to prevent the League from forming up an impressive 123-ship-of-the-line fleet in the spring of 1801 after the Baltic Sea thawed. Once it did, it would have allowed Russia's fleet to join with the Danish and Swedish, forming a formidable armada that even the Royal Navy would be unable to defeat. So, in early March, the Royal Navy began to assemble a fleet off of Great Yarmouth under the command of Admiral Hyde Parker with Vice Admiral Horatio Nelson as second in command. Frustrated by a delay in their plan of attack, Parker was finally ordered to sail to Copenhagen to remove Denmark from the League by force if necessary. Now though they sent an ultimatum to the Danish to do so peacefully, the Danish refused, and the British now had the casus bellum that they needed to begin the attack. What they didn't account for, however, was the differing objectives that Parker and Nelson each had. You see, Parker was naturally cautious, and he was perfectly content by enforcing the blockade by keeping his fleet in the Baltic rather than launch an all-out offensive and potentially destroy an ally. Nelson, however, if we haven't noticed already, was the opposite. He wanted to bypass the Danish and Norwegian entirely and sail right up to the Baltic coasts and confront the Russians before they even had time to gather their forces. Now, though they sent sorties through the narrow straits between Denmark and Sweden, there were no shots exchanged by either side. However, these passive actions basically amounted to nothing more than a stall tactic and gave the Danes more time to prepare their defenses as they came around to the fact that the British would attack sooner rather than later, especially since spring was right around the corner. Now the Danes themselves were no match for the Royal Navy. Indeed they would need the assistance of the other nations in order to properly resist an invasion. but. Parker's inaction at the start of the campaign did allow the dames time to build up their shore defenses and heavily arm their vessels into quasi-floating batteries. They would be unable to match the Royal Navy's firepower in the open ocean, sure, but as a first line of defense, they could be used to deadly effect. Further hampering the British was that their maps were somewhat outdated and they had not properly scouted the area. And so the delays leading up to the attack were spent hastily scouting coastal defenses and taking soundings, that is, measuring the depths of a body of water, of the channel leading up to the Danish coast. Now the three days before the battle were spent finalizing the preparations, with Nelson getting command of the lighter, more maneuverable vessels that were able to fight through the channel waters, while Parker would stay back in the heavier ships and provide Nelson screening from possible assistance from the Swedes and the Norwegians. Now, while Nelson wrote that the Danish defenses were strong and their positions well fortified, he noted that many of the ships used for the batteries were small and unimpressive, and if engaged by the entirety of Nelson's forces, they would be able to be neutralized fairly quickly. As such, his plan was to have his ships approach from the southern end of the Danish defenses, which he perceived as weaker and more susceptible to breaking. The first British ships would anchor, draw alongside the first Danish ship, engage, and then the following British ship would move outside of the engagement and anchor alongside the next Danish ship, and so on. From here, the defeated Danish southern end would allow for the British to begin their land invasion and have their troops begin their assault on the fortresses. With a southerly wind in their favor, the attack began on April 2nd. Nelson's fleet were able to pick their way through the rough shoals early in the morning, but three ships, the HMS Agamemnon, the HMS Russell, and the HMS Bologna, all ran aground and were either unable to take part in the battle or played limited roles. This weakened the forces' northern end and required hurried changes before the Danish got wind of their movements and would begin firing. But by 10.30 a.m., the Danish batteries would begin to fire on the British front line, and by 11.30, the battle was considered general. Now, despite the early mishaps for the British, Nelson's plan would actually play out as planned, and once the British line was in place, there was little further maneuvering needed. Both sides would exchange broadsides until one side stopped. Now, the British had expected to quickly defeat the Danish southern end, but stiff resistance by the Danish and undetected small batteries delayed further British advances. even by the early afternoon, the battle was still at a standstill, with smoke filling the skies. Now, at this time, Admiral Parker who was still far out at sea and could only see the plumes of smoke billowing from the shore, believed that Nelson was fighting to a standstill, which, again, to be fair, at the time he was, and that he would be unable to retreat lest an order be given from a higher command. So at 1.30 p.m., Parker told his flag captain, quote, I will make the signal of recall for Nelson's sake. If he is in condition to continue the action, he will disregard it. If he is not, it will be an excuse for his retreat and no blame can be imputed on him. When Nelson saw the signal, he ordered it to be acknowledged, but not repeated. And in a scene that I can only imagine was full of pure badassery, Nelson turned to his flag captain, Thomas Foley, remember the hero from the Battle of the Nile, and said, quote, You know, Foley, I only have one eye. I have the right to be blind sometimes. He then held his telescope to that blind eye and, according to legend, said, quote, I really do not see the signal. Placing the retreat flag in a spot where it would be impossible to see by Parker, the battle raged on. And it was perfect timing, because it was here when the British, with their superior firepower, began to turn the tide of the battle. Despite their valiant effort, the sheer number of British guns proved too much for the southern Danish flank, and their gunneries were eventually destroyed, albeit with significant damage to the British flagships. Regardless, this moved the fight northward, and it was reported that by 2 p.m. the Danish guns had fallen silent on the southern side. Nelson then soon after sent surrender notices to the Danish-Norwegian regent, Crown Prince Frederick, given the reality of the situation. Frederick was watching the battle from a nearby citadel, and despite a couple of rye replies back and forth, by 4 p.m. the fighting had ceased. The Danish flagship, the Danabrog, exploded at 430, killing 250 men in the process, and it was the most prominent of the two ships sunk, along with another 11 captured by the British, only one of which would make it back to Britain. Now, Nelson would begin negotiations the following day, which would ultimately last the next few weeks. One of the major sticking points for the Danes was that the British had demanded that the Danes enact a 16-week armistice to allow for British actions against the Russians, a violation of the League and when the Danes initially refused, Nelson threatened to resume hostilities at a moment's notice, which then prompted a quick apology on the part of the Danes. The armistice was ultimately reduced to 14 weeks, but the British would also gain free access to Copenhagen, a strategically important port on the route to the Russian coast. In the end, the Battle of Copenhagen had proven to be a major success for the British, especially after it was learned that Tsar Paul I had been assassinated, which basically killed the League. And while that might have damaged the League's importance and possibly the importance of the Battle of Copenhagen, it did further solidify the fact that the British were determined to ensure their continual naval superiority in the face of French influence on the continent. In this vein, it also kept France from being able to utilize the Danish ports for strategic positioning in northern European waters, critically in the Baltic Sea. What it also did though, was make Denmark a critical ally of France moving forward, and they would indeed be loyal to Napoleon, the enemy of my enemy, right? In any event, Copenhagen proved to be a precursor of what was to come, that is, Britain's aggressive approach to ensuring that they would remain masters of the sea at any cost of any enemy. They showed it at the Battle of the Nile, they reinforced it at Copenhagen, and they would confirm it at, well, we already know, but we'll get to that battle when we get to that battle. For the moment, though. Napoleon's learning of Copenhagen and Paul's death just proved further annoyances in his attempt to get Britain to the negotiating table and agree to his terms. But it was on both sides, because both countries made unreasonable asks of the other. Britain essentially wanted all of the Caribbean, while France said that Britain should return all wartime gains, as well as islands in India. Napoleon sent his diplomats to negotiate under the impression that they were in command of the situation in Egypt, which is a surefire way of showing to your enemy that you are indeed not in command of the situation in Egypt. That notwithstanding, much of the negotiating power was still in the hands of the British. They had clearly shown at Copenhagen that they could win on the open water anywhere, and this, combined with Tsar Paul's death, hastened peace negotiations between Britain, Sweden, Norway, and, now that they were dealing with the young Tsar Alexander, Russia. But Napoleon... Showing here his true ignorance when it came to naval warfare, just simply asked his best admirals to relieve the French forces in Egypt to help sway the negotiations in his favor, completely unaware of just how truly superior the British were to his French fleet. He never grasped the reality of how quickly British vessels could fire off consecutive broadsides, or that the blockades that they had initiated throughout the Mediterranean Sea against the French helped not hindered, their naval strength both in terms of battle experience and also in scaring away potential French trading partners. It gave them a a near-impenetrable sea fortress that truly boxed France into the European continent. And while we've mentioned it a couple of times during the series already, I do think it bears repeating. For as legendary a general as Napoleon was on land, he was just as inadequate in his understandings of naval warfare. It had already cost him dearly on a number of occasions, and it was a lesson he seemed unwilling to learn from. Regardless, frustrated by the lack of negotiations, Britain just continued to bombard Alexandria in force and end to the Egyptian campaign, which they believed would finally bring France to the negotiating table. And indeed, in an odd sense of irony, when Napoleon learned that Alexandria had fallen on September 2nd, Napoleon ordered Ott to tell the British that France would withdraw from Egypt, the Papal States, and Naples in exchange for peace. Completely unaware that the British had won in Egypt anyway, British representative Hawksbury agreed. Napoleon was keen to do this before the news reached Britain, ostensibly to save face, but also to ensure that concessions would not be greater. And so, on September 30th, 1801, the preliminary agreement was signed in London, and it was published the following day. Once news of the preliminary agreement became public, celebrations were held throughout London and Paris. When Napoleon's aide-de-camp, General Jacques de La Reston, arrived in London with official ratification from Paris a few days later, Many members of the crowd detached the horses from his carriage and pulled it themselves from Oxford Street to St. James Street, and then finally from Downing Street to the Admiralty and through St. James Park. Celebrations carried on throughout the evening, even despite torrential rains and thunderstorms. But can you really blame them? For the first time in what seemed like ages, France and Britain were this close to achieving a lasting peace. Well, at least so they thought. But hey, let them have their moment they couldn't see into the future or know what was to come. But one man who had a hinkling of the future was actually Hawkesbury, who believed that all of this celebration would only strengthen Napoleon's position at the negotiating table prior to the formal ratification of a full treaty. As per the preliminary agreements, however, the term stipulated that Britain was to restore most of the French colonial possessions that it had captured since 1794, evacuate Malta, and withdraw from other Mediterranean ports. Now Malta was to be restored to the Order of St. John, enforced by one or more of the Great Powers to be determined at a later date. Now meanwhile, France was to restore Egypt back under Ottoman control, agree to preserve Portuguese sovereignty, and to withdraw from much of the Italian peninsula. Ceylon, modern-day Sri Lanka and formerly a Dutch colony, was to remain in British hands, while the lucrative fishing waters around Newfoundland were restored to their pre-war status. Both sides were able to access ports at the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa, and Spain, out of nowhere, was to lose Trinidad to the British in a secret clause. Now, while all of this again was preliminary, its news sparked jubilation throughout Europe. For the first time in what seemed like centuries, there would be order on the continent. But, preliminary was the key word here. You see, Napoleon knew that he could extract much from the British because they were in a state of near desperation. But wait, you might be asking, didn't they control the seas and could block France in? Well, yes, they could, but keep in mind that in the early 19th century, much of the lucrative trade was actually within Europe itself. Many of the major trading partners we think of today, the USA, China, India, Brazil, Australia, many of them were still in their infancy as nations or under colonial ruler dominion. Thus, with Britain being cut off from much of the Continental trade for the last decade, this put them in a position where everything was on the table to end this war. Thus, when the British sent General Charles Cornwallis, yes, that same Cornwallis that surrendered to George Washington at Yorktown, Napoleon knew that he had tremendous leverage at getting what he wanted. And so when Cornwallis arrived in France in mid-October, he would be welcomed with a salute of cannon and an honor guard, which eventually accompanied him to Paris, where there were additional celebrations and parties to celebrate his arrival. Now from here, he was then transported to Amiens, where he would begin negotiations with the France's representatives, Napoleon's brother Joseph, and everyone's favorite duplicitous politician, Talleyrand. And by the way, if you're wondering why they chose Amiens as the site for the signing of the treaty, it was alleged that the town would provide good omens as Henry VIII of England and François of France had signed a peace treaty there in 1527. But we can probably all guess how good of an omen that turned out to be, can't we? Now once in Amiens, Cornwallis was under tremendous pressure to come to an agreement, something which he was notorious at folding under. Joseph and Talleyrand, knowing this, constantly shifted their positions and demands, leaving Cornwallis to later comment that, quote, I feel it as the most unpleasant circumstance, attending this unpleasant business, that after I have obtained his acquiescence on any point, I can have no confidence that it is finally settled and that he will not recede it from our next conversation. Touche. Now the Dutch were also involved in the negotiations, says the Batavian Republic, and they sent representatives there by December, though they received little, if any, respect from the French, who thought of them as nothing more than a conquered people who should feel lucky enough to even have a seat at the table. The Dutch and the British, however, did agree that Ceylon would remain British, and that South Africa would be given to the Dutch, but that its ports would be open to all. Now, I think this goes without saying, but Ceylon and South Africa were not invited to this meeting, but I figured I'd just say the silent part out loud. By year's end, it was looking like much of what was to be agreed upon would indeed come to pass. But then something happened in January of 1802 that infuriated the British. Napoleon, Accompanied by Josephine, set off for Lyon, where he was to accept the role as chief magistrate—that is, president—of the new Italian Republic, which covered most of northern Italy and was formed with the remnants of the Cisalpine Republic and the provinces that France had taken from Austria in the Treaty of Lunéville. But this action directly violated Lunéville, in which Napoleon had agreed to guarantee the independence of the Italian Republic and its other client states. But I mean, come on, this is Napoleon we're talking about here, people. Ignoring a nation's sovereignty and right to self-determination is just what he does. It's his M.O. I mean, have we learned nothing already from this podcast? Now, one thing that his being named to the presidency of the Italian Republic did do, however, was display the word Italy on official print for the first time since the Roman Empire. And indeed, much like in the late 1790s, this allowed for the seeds to be sown on growing Italian nationalism and ultimately peninsular unification. But that notwithstanding, Napoleon's brashness, celebrated as it was in France, was beginning to roil many in the other signatories in the Amiens peace negotiations. Spain's representative, the Marquis de Hazada, did not arrive until early February 1802, but when he did, he proposed that he and Cornwallis negotiate a separate deal on the side, but Cornwallis declined, believing he would do nothing more than lead to further endless war. He wanted to get a peace done now. But what really sealed the deal for the British was, of course, money. You see, war is expensive, extremely expensive, and with budget debates taking place in Parliament, Cornwallis received further pressure from Westminster to get this thing over with already. Now, despite some last sticking points on the status of Malta, at 3 a.m. on March twenty fifth, 1802, Cornwallis and Joseph Bonaparte signed the final agreement. Cornwallis was personally unhappy with the concessions, but at this point, he was both mentally and physically drained. Furthermore, he worried about the, quote, ruinous consequences of renewing a bloody and hopeless war. And thus, in a scene that would play out 116 years later in the armistice that ended the Great War, Britain decided that a quick peace was better than a lasting war to foster a better world order. The final terms of the Treaty of Amiens went as follows. Point one, the restoration of prisoners and hostages. Point two, Britain returned the Cape Colony to the Batavian Republic, Point three, Britain returned most of its captured Dutch Guiana to the Batavian Republic. Point four, Britain withdrew its forces from Egypt. Point five, Spain agreed to British rule of Trinidad. Point six, the Batavian Republic to cede Ceylon, previously under the control of the United Provinces and the Dutch East India Company, to Britain. Point seven, France withdraw its forces from the Papal States and the Kingdom of Naples. Point eight, French Guiana to have its borders defined. Point nine, Malta, Gozo, and Comino to be restored to the Knights Hospitaller and to be declared neutral. Point 10, Gibraltar to remain under British rule. Point 11, Minorca was returned to Spain. Point 12, the House of Orange Nassau to be compensated for its losses in the Netherlands. And point 13, the Septinsular Republic was recognized by the signatory parties. This was a republic that operated under nominal Russian and Ottoman sovereignty in the Ionian Islands of modern-day Greece. Now, the Peace of Amiens created a sort of sensation in both countries. Thousands of Britons flocked to France, now able to tour without risk of arrest or capture. Many went to the Louvre to see the renewed collections there. Others saw friends they hadn't seen in years, but many just came to get a glimpse of the man who was transforming Europe in his image. Across Europe, countries whose economies had been ravaged by the wars of the previous decade began to slowly heal and trade began to thrive in an open Europe for the first time in years. It was a hallmark day for those involved, and while we know it wouldn't last at the time, Amiens seemed to herald in a new day for Europe and, in turn, the world. Next week, however, we're going to take a step back and visit one area of the world where there was no peace. Far from it, in fact. An area of the world which was still mired in violence and war and was one of France's most lucrative colonies. What started as a slave uprising had now turned into a bloody revolution that was throwing the regional order of the Caribbean into chaos, the Haitian Revolution. Back in December of 1801, Napoleon, now faced with this growing crisis for the first time as head of state, decided to put a stop to it once and for all. So he sent his brother-in-law, a general Charles Leclerc, and an expeditionary force to quell the violence and pacify the island. But Leclerc wouldn't pacify the island, and to the contrary, he would never see his homeland again. So join us next week as we finally talk about the most underrated thorn in Napoleon's side, the Leclerc expedition during the Haitian Revolution.